He's Charles to me. He's Lord Canoole to all of you peasants. But we need to get into that. Mm -hmm. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created Contributing to inflation. When we talk about the gas prices right now, this is indeed Putin's gas hike. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilacs. Today we have Yuri Yarimageyev on Russia and a special royal guest. Let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! <laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 596. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis. It's a beautiful day here, and I'd like you to join Ricochet. And you say, why would I want to do that? If it's such a great thing, why don't Peter and Rob show up for the podcast at the same time? Well, they have. It's been a few weeks, but we're all back together and happy to have you at ricochet.com, where you too can be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. Peter, Rob, welcome back. We're all together again. Uh, how are things where you are, briefly, not that anybody cares, but we have to you know, go through the motions of uh, you know, yeah, pretending that we're all settling down to a little chat here with scones and tea and the rest of it. Where I am, it's sunny, clement, and miserable. I just tanked up six dollars and ninety-seven cents a gallon. Good Lord, six ninety-seven. Now we have to 6. say ninety-seven. That's you're Northern paying California. the California. You're paying the California premium. Correct. I I am, but it didn't used to be that big a premium. No, no, yes. but it's uh, it's, yes, it's, it's always. I, I don't expect it to be as high anywhere else in the country, but on, honestly, as that numbers get, turned faster than I've ever seen them turn before, I thought to myself. Our guest on the, our several times guest on this podcast, Mr. Schellenberger, who's running for governor against Gavin Newsom, may very well have a chance. Now, enough people in this state are going to be, and, and right, people tank up and they get angry when they tank up. There were no smiling faces at the <laughs> gas station this morning. They don't just get angry when they tank up, they get angry when they buy groceries. The other day, I was looking at the price yep. of eggs, which appeared to have doubled. I was looking at, I mean, I'm now foraging at ways at stores that I know do this and do that so I can get this at that time because <laughs> I love that, I, I, I love I mean, that image. Everything, every baseline for the, because I do the grocery shopping and I know what things cost. Every baseline price is just leaped way up and it ain't coming down. So yeah. you take those two things together. And Rob, do you think that President Biden is justified in his anger that uh, he's not getting enough credit for doing the things that he's done to make America better? Well, you never it's never a good position politically to be saying, I'm not getting the credit I deserve. That's not the that's not that is always a sign of weakness. It was a sign of weakness um, in past administrations, even very recent ones, and it's a sign of weakness now. You don't want to be doing that. You want it to be obvious. Um, the, the 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 question is, I mean, just so you take take gas. Gas is a perfect good example. I used to go drive the dog to the beach up in Malibu when I lived in L.A. every week, and it just so happened that that was when I was needed to fill up gas, and I filled it up on PCH, and it was always expensive because, well, the gas along that way is expensive because there's only one gas station and it takes it's hard to get there etc et pch pacific coast highway for pacific coast highway, californians right. exactly um and then you occasionally you'd say well you know 
forget that. I'm going to just go over the hill and get go in the valley on the 101 freeway and get it uh, tanked up in Thousand Oaks or Calabasas, where there's a gas station every 20 minutes, every 20 seconds, I mean. Um, and that wasn't that much cheaper because California's got its own little cocktail of gas that's entirely formulated by environmental um, lobbies. So the question is for the American people, for the Californians, for American people in general, you know, when the prices go up, and they include that weird premium we have for federal subsidies and for the special environmental stuff, are they going to realize that this is a process that's been going on a long time and unroll it? And if Californians, if they were smart, would roll it back. So yes, we hope that we can talk about Governor Schellenberger soon. But my hope is that people connect these things. It's not just Putin. It's not just stupid Biden writing checks to everybody. It's also this, when we're rich, it's easy to say, yeah, sure, put out a little gas tech. Oh, Correct. sure, we should have our own thing. Well, it's fine. We should, sub- all that stuff, it's easy to say. But when it starts to pinch, what I hope is that it's a, let me, here's my analogy. And Peter, interrupt me any minute. Um, COVID, I believe, I still believe this very strongly. COVID revealed in the stress it put on parents and students, revealed just how broken the public education system is in america um private is too but that's you know hey you pay your money you get your you, you get what you pay for uh and there does seem to be some pushback political social cultural pushback um from that and i hope that there'll be the same pushback now that we realize that we've been living in a fantasy land thinking that we can have everything we want and we can kind of shrug our hands and oh, shrug our shoulders ah what the hell you know put up you know more regulation better um and we realize there's a cost of that. And I, what I hope is that there's this revolution in America, um, cultural and political and environmental and all sorts of things that brings us back to normal. I'm it's very coming. Uh, back to Joe Biden. He has three problems. And we've talked <laughs> wow. about a couple of them before. One is, one, one is that he's just not all there anymore. He really just yeah. isn't. The other is that for reasons known best to his advisors, he simply, I, yes, I guess I would say he sold his soul. He sold what was left of, of the Joe Biden who could have been, and for many years was, which was an Irish guy from Scranton, where people, I grew up close to Scranton. I know Scranton, and it was a town where Irish people and Russians and Ukrainians and Poles went down into the mines, and they did that filthy work, and they came up dirty and covered in coal dust every day to make a better lives for their kids. They were patriots. They were New Deal Democrats. They, they, they were suspicious of employers for good reason. They believed in unions, but they were patriots. They went to church on Sunday, overwhelmingly Catholic, and they, they paid attention to what bishops said. All right, that could have been Joe Biden. He's given himself out to the left, to the woke progressives. That's irreparable. And this is what just occurred to me the other day for the reason that Rob pointed to. What? Hey, what's the message? He doesn't actually know how anything works. I looked him up on Wikipedia. He spent about two and a half years in the private sector practicing law. The rest of his professional life, and I mean the entire rest of his professional life, has been in government as a legislator. So he has no understanding of the kinds of trade-offs and imperatives 
that drive forces in the market sector. He just doesn't know how much of America works. And when he was vice president, he said, well, no, he spent eight years as Obama's vice president. Look, I worked for a vice president. They're a lot closer to being legislators. They have talking jobs. Joe Biden is now two years into the first doing job as opposed to a talking job that he's ever had in his life. He doesn't know how the country works. He doesn't know yeah. how the executive branch works. All was before, all his professional life, he's been able to talk his way out of political problems. And it just won't work. Not this time. So we're stuck with a guy who is all these columns that keep coming out they, with greater or lesser degrees of at least putative friendliness. If only the president would do this. We all, even conservatives saying, we only have one president at a time. It's important for him to rally, to do this. To do. It's not going to happen. We have a right. president who is just broken. And we have to hope for the best for the next two, two and a half years until somebody else takes that job. I think it's true. I mean, this is exhibit A for why uh, senators in general are terrible presidents. They just, all they know how to do is talk and blab and blather. Um, but this guy especially seems so rudderless and the White House seems so uh, undirected. It's such a strange thing. You know, I, I'm always, I, I'm amazed by the Democratic Party in general because it's really, the American politics is not that complicated a mousetrap, really. You just... You know, the Republicans were always cornered in this terrible position of having to say like mean things like, well, we have to <laughs> cut party. taxes on business and we, you know, we have to uh, raise money to fight the commies and all that stuff. And the, and the Democrats could say things like, hey, we're, we're worried about your, your what's in your lunch pail. Right. Um, <laughs> but they seem to have really gone off the beam. And it's just it's like when you know, when you're. I think it's like when you're watching one of those uh, lab rat mazes and you just can't believe the rat is so dumb. They can't yes. figure it out. You know, there's a dumb rat and a smart rat. And it, it, it just is like watching it from the sidelines. If it wasn't, you know, we weren't all subjected to it in living in this country and as Americans, it'd be, it'd be almost comical to watch the Democratic Party try to uh, fumble its um, three point lead. They have the yes. White House, yes. the House, and the Senate, and they still can't get it together. And the the formula is not that complicated. Just the cheese stop. is over there. They're going it's for the electric there. shock no, again no, no, and again and, and it's again. Easy the cheese because is right all, there. All we have to do, we have to ask you to not be weird. Just don't be weird for like a year. You're asking. Just try not being weird for a year. You're, and then, you're asking and you're, people and you're, to give up their identities, their entire <laughs> intellectual, Correct. emotional, yes. personal identities. They're still worried about what's in your lunch pail, but it's no longer the quantity of it. What is they're, they're concerned about whether or not you've got meat in your lunch pail because that's destroying the planet. They're worried about whether or not you have some sort yeah. of factory farm. They're worried about things that they didn't used to be worried about because we had the luxury to just dream of this new world that right. we are going to be moving into. Biden himself speaks of the, the cost of gas as being part of this incredible transition that we're making, even though we're making no transition. But it's like we invented, we, we elected a senile wizard who knew no tricks <laughs> and his entire staff consisted of alchemists who didn't, who, who never really figured out that alchemy didn't work, but they just, well, if we have an opportunity to try alchemy, then we can do it. So they're all in there now trying to turn lead into gold and it doesn't work because it's nonsense. The whole transitional element that they wanted to do for us was economic, cultural, 
political, sexual, social. They came in with this whole brave new world that we were supposed to get in there, just saying a stun that the rest of us, rest of us haven't gone along with it. But when Rob, you say they used to be worried about that guy with the lunch pail, he doesn't matter anymore because if he doesn't come along willingly to all of these new concepts and these new reorderings, and these fundamental transformations that Biden and Obama are always talking about, then he simply has to be forced. And the American people, to their credit, have their backs and their dander up, and they're not going to be forced into this. So, uh, yeah, well, we hope. We, we, wait a minute. You were the one who just said that you were hopeful. Peter, <laughs> no, Peter are not. you hopeful not- that, we're, that, that actually <laughs> they went too far and that people will say, okay, all right, fine, I'll call this person whatever they want to be called. I'm just not going to pretend that this person is that. You know, I, I am hopeful, but I'm hopeful for for a reason that we're going to end up discussing in a podcast in two or three weeks, I suspect. I'm hopeful because it looks to me as though the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. That means a regime of a certain kind of lie will have ended. Everybody knows at this stage that that clump of cells isn't a clump of cells, but a baby. And half the country has been lying to itself and trying to get the other half to, to become complicit in that lie. More important, or easier for Rob to join in on, it is going to restore the constitutional balance between the central government and federalism. It will require politics to take place the way they should take place, in which all across the country, in 50 different states, people who are pro-life, people who are pro-choice, are going to do what Americans should be doing, which is convincing their neighbors. I'm optimistic over the long term. I'm very nervous over the next two and a half years because we have Putin and Xi Jinping and we have a chief executive who is just broken and isn't going to get fixed. Well, it's going to be a long, hot summer, as they always say. And listen, listen, (laughs) folks, if you can't take the heat, get out of your underwear. Yes, that's what I said. Get out of your old stifling underwear. The only way to play it cool this summer is with Tommy John. Because when you wear Tommy John, you're that much cooler, so you can do everything better thanks to breathable, lightweight fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. With dozens of comfort innovations, Tommy John will keep you looking and feeling cool all season long, from lounging around at home to summertime fun. That's why Tommy John doesn't just have customers, they have fanatics. With over 17 million pairs sold, people love their Tommy John underwear and their loungewear, as do I. The loungewear is great, too, because it's cool. And you can hang around the house and you don't stifle and you don't look like you put on some ratty gray sweats that the wife wishes you would you know, get rid of. No, she likes it, frankly, when I put on the Tommy Johns. They don't just make you feel cooler, look cooler. You actually are cooler. You can stay up to seven degrees cooler in cotton with Tommy John's Apollo underwear. And there's no risk because you're covered. You're covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So shop TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet right now, this very second, for 20% off your first order. Get 20% off right now at TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. See the site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast Yuri Yarem Ageyev. He's a scientist, an economist, and a human rights activist who is a key member of the Moscow Helsinki Group and a leader of the human rights movement in Russia, working closely with Andrei Sakharov and other dissidents. After receiving his PhD in physics and applied mathematics from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, he worked as a senior scientist for the Institute of Chemical Physics in the USSR Academy of Sciences. And as a consequence of his dissident activities, he was forced into exile. He's here now to give us some insider information. Welcome, Yuri. Thank you for joining us. Hi. So we... we, we, Yuri. Go ahead, Peter. 
Yuri, we'll get in a moment to what the United States ought to do about Ukraine, but here's the first question. What did Vladimir Putin think he was doing? He could have simply tried to seize the eastern regions, the Donbass, and it seems to me there's a very good chance he'd have gotten away with that just the way he got away with seizing the Crimea some years ago. Instead, they attacked the whole country of Ukraine. On the first day, they shelled as far west as Lviv. He sent in two armored columns to surround Kiev and take the capital deep inside the country. What was he thinking? Is he ill and desperate to make a some kind of play for a legacy? Was he being lied to by his own military? Is he simply deluded that Russia still has some kind of old imperial mission to save the world from the West? What was he thinking? All the above, Peter. First, the, what was the reason and what provoked him exactly. Now, the main reason is that he felt more and more than he was threatened. Well, he says that Russia was threatened, but actually he means himself and his own power. And what was it threatened by? By democratic developments around him. So first of all, Ukraine, but also we remember that democratic revolution started in Belarus and in Kazakhstan. So all country was around Russia started to move in the democratic direction. And inside Russia, Navalny and his movement became serious opposition, democratic opposition to his regime also. So he really felt threatened, and he felt that he needs to empower himself. And the best way he saw empowering himself was a quick, decisive victory. And he was encouraged with uh, Crimea, and Donbass of 2014, which gave particular Crimea, which was such an easy victory. And so he counted on really several days occupation of Ukraine and to uh, empower himself more. Now, why he decided that it's possible? Because he was provoked by several things. First, by the weakness of the United States, particularly of the, by the loss of Afghan war uh, by Biden uh, and decisive, decisive loss. Secondly, he was misled by the intelligence about how strong his army is and how weak Ukrainian army is. And by intelligence, I mean not only his own intelligence, which definitely provided him absolutely false information that Ukraine would not resist, they would embrace actually Russian invasion. But I, I cannot say many good words about our own intelligence, which also, as you remember, said that if Russia attacks Ukraine, it would be cakewalk, you know, they, they would take it over in several days. And that was opinion of many intelligence people here, of many analysts, which also encouraged Putin. And I actually, I consider our analysts and uh, intelligence partially responsible for this war by their misjudgment of uh, Russia, for strength of Russian army, 
weakness of Russian army and the strength of Ukrainian army. So that's why it happens. You know, he had a reason and he was totally disinformed about the real situation, what might happen. Um, hey, uh, thanks for joining us, Yuri. It's Rob Long in New York. Um, isn't it a little ironic that this guy who um, two years ago, if you read the American press, you read the New York Times, he was this Bond supervillain, this sort of genius with uh, all sorts of levers to pull to affect a United States election, um, champion of disinformation and compromat. Uh, you know, he seemed absolutely formidable, and yet he is the biggest, I, can, I can't think of a bigger victim of the Russian intelligence services than Vladimir Putin. What, what must be going through the heads of the people around Putin right now, thinking, are we going to follow this guy all the way into the ditch? Is he going to pull us out of the ditch? Or are we going to have to take other measures? Question to me or to Peter? Oh, no, no, to you, not to Peter. Peter doesn't know anything. <laughs> to you. Rob has Rob knows my yes that's a fair judgment. <laughs> well again uh, the who who Putin is and who Putin was is always very exaggerated you know and he is very mediocre covered person from the very beginning medium level KGB officer and nothing else you know so all the rest is fiction and invention, you know, by, again, American analysts and, and European analysts, politicians, etc. So there was nothing special on him from the very start. Why he is disillusioned, uh, well, deceived or whatever by his intelligence? First of all, I think his intelligence itself thought the same way. It's, it was very bad intelligence, which operated very poorly. But in addition to that, Putin built his authoritarian power inside Russia, which actually turned now into real totalitarian power, which actually discouraged uh, all his subordinates to provide him with very bad information, which is typical for such political systems, you know. So anybody was afraid to tell him, to deliver him any mm -hmm. bad news. You know, they always right. try to appease him and to present the situation that everything is great. And it's typical. It was typical for the Soviet Union, which eventually also became such internal disinformation, let's say. Now Putin is right. the product of his own disinformation, which he, he installed himself. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that, that to me is the irony, of course, is that when you start to mess up the, the when you start to compromise the 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 lines of information, you end up actually reading your own nonsense um, and believing yeah, it. Yeah, because you know, sort of a, the problem with such system is a lack of real feedback. You right. know, that's why they eventually collapse. You know, the system without feedback cannot operate properly. Right. Well, even now, look, Russian army fights inside this Ukraine, and the real person who seems to command it is Putin himself. Right. Now, at the same time, he is not given right information of what happens inside Ukraine. So how you can command army without knowing truth <laughs> about what happens with 
The irony is the best source of information from him for him is probably the New York Times or the Institute for the Study of War uh, website, which I recommend to everyone. Well, I can name you plenty of such great sources <laughs> in America and in Western Europe who who uh, actually. Okay, so I, I have two more questions. Uh, uh, one is there's the cynical attitude I've been sort of collecting over time. Uh, maybe it's real politic. Maybe it's sort of America, you know, American interests first, kind of cold, bloodless, frankly, kind of amoral. The idea is um, the Russians have lost a lot, 20% of their ability, apparently. Let's keep this going for a while. Let's give the plucky Ukrainians some serious artillery. Let's see how much destruction we can we can we can have the Ukrainians do on the Russian army. Let's see what happens if Putin starts to lose again. It doesn't seem to me right now, just looking at this, this just, just this morning, that there, there's a, a, a detectable change in Russian strategy or Russian command and control. Um, I mean, we're going to lose a lot of Ukrainians. The Ukrainians lose a lot of Ukrainians, but there's a certain American cold, bloodless attitude, which is like, well, they're going to have a war. Let's make sure it's even because it, uh, uh, at least for ordinance. And if it's even that way, Ukrainians are probably going to win, or at least the Russians are going to lose. They may get a sliver of Eastern Ukraine to call their own, but at an, at a, at enormous cost. Is that, um, is that what you think is happening? First of all. And second of all, is that the right thing to do? Well, it's not only cynical attitude that you described, it's also very stupid attitude and very rational attitude. It's not in the interest of this country. Look, fast, quick, and decisive victory of Ukraine is in vital interest of our country. Now, we should, re and when people ask what this war has to do with us, I mean, those people don't understand what happens in this world, you know, right. because actually what happens in Ukraine now is typical proxy war, war between democracy and totalitarianism, uh, very similar to many wars which happened during the Soviet period between Soviet communism and America and NATO, like Vietnam, Korea, whatever else. And Actually, Russia openly declares that they fight war against America, not against Ukraine. They simply fight this war on Ukrainian territory, but their real enemy against which they fight is the United States of America. And to pretend that it doesn't happen, to ignore this fact, is simply stupid. Actually, the situation is very simple. If Ukraine wins, America wins. If Ukraine loses, America loses. And as if it is not, has been not enough losses recently right. for America. So on, there are only two kinds of people, which I would say question whether we should support fully Ukraine in this war. Either anti-Americans who actually wish America to lose any war, and such people unfortunately exist in our country as we know, or such extreme isolationists mm -hmm. who don't care about America losing its war as long as it doesn't lose its war on its own territory. Right. But I think it's a very short-sighted and stupid approach. And the loss of the war is the loss of the war. And as I say, if Ukraine loses this war, 
And might have colluded. Okay, this so war. just to follow up on that, so uh, are, uh, what what position would America? What what would your recommendation be? Um, I mean, you know, we just sent money and we're sending artillery. What else should we do? Oh, much more. Look, why? Let's let me say the following thing. I believe that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this war is the most important war for the United States. Now, if we fought wars directly with our troops in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, and bombed uh, Serbia, you know, right. Yugoslavia. So, which went much less important and questionable war in terms of interests of the United States. Why we began, became so restrained in this case, why Biden declared from, even before this war started, that there would be no American troops on Ukrainian ground. Why would we say that there would be no fly zone which was a rule for such war. You know, we shot Soviet jets right. over Korea, we shot Soviet jets over Vietnam, and even over Syria now by Turkey. Right. So we have to give Putin credit, though. I mean, this timing is really good. Uh, any American president going to the American people and saying, we are going to fly, American pilots are going to fly over the war zone and drop bombs, that American soldiers will be in Ukraine. Um, that that president, in my, my opinion, would find zero percent support. Now, maybe it's the fault of of Biden for absolutely flubbing the Afghanistan exit. Maybe it's the just the exhaustion the American people have with foreign wars, capital F, capital W. But within the realm of political realism, what should America do? What can what? What I don't mean in an ideal sense. I just mean in the in the tomorrow morning you're in charge, and it's the America that you're given, 2022 in June. What are you going to do? Well, first of all, in terms of um, I, I understand what you are saying about American being tired of involvement of wars, particularly that some of those wars had little explanation mm -hmm. to Americans, but and maybe society is not very enthusiastic about direct involvement, but there is followership and there is leadership. And actually such attitude could easily change, particularly with victories uh, yes, of, I agree. by Ukraine and Ukraine. So I think the more daring president, which we don't have now, <laughs> could have gone for that and could have gained actually very soon support by the society. But even if to put off for a while direct involvement in America, either on troops on the ground or a no-fly zone, we can help much more with weapons, much more. And uh, actually, our position should be to provide Ukraine with most sophisticated yeah. weapons, okay. superior to Russian weapons. Why shouldn't we give? But that's a different. That's a different argument with a threshold, with a with a a a, a, um, a line that you don't cross. We'll give you what you need to fight for your own country, fight your own people, fight have your own people fight for your own country, and that I think um, 
I don't think that would be the hardest thing to explain to American people. Um, just short of, and and I, I'm not arguing for his statement, but just short of the idea that American soldiers in uniform are going to be in Ukraine, which I think would be a political mistake. It would actually ult- ultimately hurt the Ukrainians. Hmm. Yeah, but again, even without American soldiers in American uniforms yeah. there, why not to provide Ukraine jets? Right. Why don't no, I get it. provide Ukraine all modern missiles? And look, again, the uh, United States restrains itself on everything. For example, it it's ready to give missiles now to uh, Ukraine, but it says we don't we won't give you long distance missiles because you can shoot targets in Russia. So what is wrong about that? If Russia uses its uh, missiles, uh, sends its missiles from its own territory to destroy American citizens, uh, cities and kill uh, civil population right. and children there, what's wrong but by Ukrainian response to shut down those missiles? Now, they say, we give you harpoons, but only short-distance harpoons, because they are afraid that Russia would sink Black Sea Navy. What, what's wrong with Sorry, Ukraine would sink Black Sea Navy. But what is wrong with Ukraine sinking Black Sea Navy? Because this Black Sea Navy is armed with cruise missiles, which again shoot at Ukrainian cities. So... There is nothing wrong. And the crossing of line is the most misunderstood concept by many politicians. Because actually, Russia does whatever it can do already without boundaries of what is permissible to them. They cannot do it. This boundary or this line is crucial concept. Because this boundary means the following. Russian wouldn't do any such thing which can cause serious repercussions from our side. So that there what the boundaries is. So if we narrow our boundaries of what is permissible to us, we automatically expand boundaries for Russia. It will do more. So actually our inaction, when action is expected, escalates the situation on Russian behalf, much more than if we actually act. That may sound strange, but that's exactly what happens. Because whenever Russia expects that we can do give such weapon or we can do something, and we on voluntarily refuse to do that, we expand boundaries of permissible to Russia, and this is escalation. Otherwise, if we do otherwise. If we start to narrow those boundaries, for example, we give long-distance missiles which can shoot some uh, bases inside Russia, Mm -hmm. it will be no escalation. It will be opposite for the Russians. And also, term of escalation is relative term. Actually, we are interested in escalation on Ukrainian side. You cannot win war without escalating. How did we win Second World War? It was Normandy, it was bombing of Tokyo, and all the things, that was escalation. If you want quick victory, we should actually help Ukraine to escalate its efforts 
And we should do everything to prevent Russia to escalate its effort, meaning punish them for each thing that they do and restrain them more and more. What some are hoping is that it, Russia collapses from within. This may be a pipe dream. This may be possible. We don't know. It's obscure here. But what would you say are the greatest domestic pressures on Putin right now? Well, the greatest domestic pressure will develop. It's, it's a dynamic process. First of all, everything we're talking about changes every day. That's very important to understand. Whether we're talking about... Uh, it, uh, attitude of American society, Ukrainian society, Russian society, it changes every day, and it strongly depends on what happens in Ukraine. If Ukrainian army wins, the first effect, and gets more and more victories, the first effect it has on Russian army itself. So that is a crucial part of the Russian society itself. Because, I mean, the the ideal scenario for us, I believe, would be collapse of Russian army because of total collapse of its morale, because they refusing to fight, etc. And I think that should be one of the main targets. Now, uh, the rest of the Russian society would develop slower because it doesn't feel the thing which Russian army feels inside Ukraine. But eventually it will get to them, and it will get through several things. It will get through losses, through the uh, body bags, you know, which would come to more and more parts in Russia. It would get through economic sanctions, which people would start to feel more and more. And unless Putin could deliver them real victory, the society would turn against Putin. Putin will lose. Putin's regime will lose. If Ukraine wins, the Putin regime will lose. Actually, it will lose anyway. It's a question of time, you know, because they already failed in this first, first and main attempt of this blitzkrieg, you know, immediate war. Um, but if Ukraine really has quick and decisive victory, we can expect Putin, Putin's regime collapse very soon. And that's in our best interest. Again, look, there are people again in the West who try to save Putin's face, which is repugnant to me. You know, you cannot save face of the murderer and criminal, you know. It's pervert attitude. But actually what those people are saying, they try to save Putin's power inside Russia, you know, but saying that they try to save his face, they say that Actually, why should we help Putin to keep his power in Russia? It's, again, completely irrational. The person who kills people all around the world and who threatens us with nuclear weapon, why should we help him to keep power? You know, in our best interest is for him to lose power. And I don't suggest that we do it directly from our side. But as I say, decisive, quick and decisive victory by the Ukraine is the most direct way for the collapse of Putin's regime. Dr. Yuri Magayev, thank you for joining us today. I hope to have you back when we discuss the post-Putin Russian situation and how opportunities <laughs> were no doubt squandered. But yeah, we can always hope. Thank you for joining us. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Yuri. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, if you watch your television, your documentaries on Russian history, you know it's a series of missed opportunities and the rest. Tragic, isn't it? Then again, you might say, that guy was in Russian.
How could you tell? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I love the pronunciation. And one of the fun things, actually, when it comes to accents like that, is going to watch television that has, I mean, there are certain British shows I've seen where I need subtitles, and, and thankfully the Americans uh, do provide them. But that doesn't mean I always want to watch American television. You know, sometimes you want to watch it from other countries. Listen, uh, like, well, they'll catch you. They'll catch you. They'll see your IP address and they'll well, catch you. Well, that's where you have to pull a little trick because you, like, oh, for example, all ears. Netflix. If you're watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN, it's like buying tickets to a music festival, but only being allowed to watch the prescribed acts that you don't even get to select. So in other words, it's like this. There's this whole world of television out there that exists in various streaming systems and places around the world you can't get because when you're coming in, they look at where you're coming in from and say, uh, 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 wrong country. So you kind of got a little spoofing thing you have to do. You just choose a UK server. Now you're tearing out your hair. How can I possibly change my server location? What? ExpressVPN, that's how you want to get control of where you want to watch your Netflix or your other streaming websites. Tell them where you think they think you are. Uh, listen, if you want to watch Parks and Rec, you have to be watching from the UK. Or you can open up ExpressVPN app, select UK, tap a single button, and when you refresh the page, voila, you're there. Of course, I wouldn't say voila because it's UK. It would be more like a France thing, but you get the drift. Along with access to a long list of shows you can't get anywhere else before, you can enjoy blazing fast speeds to stream in HD. And it's not just Netflix. You can change your location to see restricted content from the BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, and more. And ExpressVPN works on all your devices, your phone, your tablet, your smart TV, your laptop. They're all compatible. So be smart and be safe. Stop Paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. It's money's worth at expressvpn.com slash ricochet. And don't forget to use that link, expressvpn.com slash ricochet, to get an extra three free months at ExpressVPN. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, <clears throat> the Lord of Canoodle. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sure I'm... The Earl of Canoe. The Earl of Canoe? The Earl? Oh, right. Yeah, I have to give you guys tutorials on these. Uh, uh, you know what? Okay. He's the, he, I, I am stepping back. I am handing this over to... to he is, he is the Earl of Canoe, then you would address him as Lord Canoe. Well, no, not necessarily so. Right, I'm an American. James. I'm not required to do so. I would do so <laughs> out, of, out of respect and decency, but I'm not I'm required to. <clears throat> Uh, but um, why don't we just hand it off to you, Peter? You you do the introduction because All you right. know the 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 deets, the ins, the outs. In an earlier, much much earlier, now long lost phase of my life, I studied at Oxford with a man who is joining us now. He is my old friend Charles Hay, who is also the sixteenth Earl of Canoole, a Scottish title. Awarded to your family by James the second and seventh, or first and sixth? Which was it, Charles? I can't remember which James. Uh, it was uh, when it actually was Charles the first. Um, he got a Charles got the an, first. Charles the first um, gave us the title in sixteen thirty-three. Things did not end well for Charles the first, but that's a different matter. Charles Canule, Char my friend Lord Canule, the Earl of Canule, whom I will from now on address as Charles, is a member, is a hereditary member of the House of Lords, where he sits on a committee which is attempting to hold Britain together while they have a prime minister who's not unlike our president. Charles, you, you needn't say a thing about this. I'm offering my own opinion here. <laughs> so that, uh, that Britain is in the same position we're in, where we're looking to people just one step down from the top to hold everything together. But what's happening in Britain this weekend 
is that Elizabeth II, the country, the Commonwealth, is celebrating the 70th anniversary of the ascension to the throne in 1952 of a 25-year-old mother of two who is now 96 years old. Charles, I've, I clicked on YouTube yesterday to watch the beginnings of these festivities, the flyby, this suddenly frail little old lady walking out to the balcony of Buckingham Palace to acknowledge a vast crowd. The entire country has stopped everything to celebrate this woman's seven decades on the throne. Why? Make sense of this to Americans. Well, I think you all have a, a quite a good sense um, already, in fact. I always find Americans uh, know a lot about our country, as we, I think, know a lot about yours. But um, it's four whole days of, of celebrations that are, are going on. And I think that uh, what one finds in the country is a, a sense of her greatness, uh, a sense of gratitude to her, and a sense that um, it's a historical moment. Um, and the trouble is that, I mean, I, I've I can't speak to anyone who has any sentient um, memories of um, of time before when she was queen, because you have to be more than seventy years old, of course, uh, to do that. And it's um, it it is a, a astounding what a constant uh, thing she's been. And uh, you've just been talking about a disappointing president and mentioning a disappointing prime minister. I'm a crossbencher, so I'm independent. Um, and uh, but she is never disappointed, and uh, and we've had lots of disappointing prime ministers even in my lifetime, and you've had one or two disappointing presidents as well. Um, so I think that's why there is this sense, and it's unleashed the most tremendous atmosphere um, in the vast majority of the country here, with people wanting to celebrate. Charles, can you uh, these this these these Republicans want to get in on it? Uh, Republicans with small R, so just be slightly careful. Rob is in this country a tremendously aristocratic figure, but he he's going to put on the uh, guise of a slightly skeptical ma man when it comes to the monarchy. But can you, for Americans, she's omnipresent. She's on the stamp. She's on the coins. Every time she totters out to the balcony, she it makes television news. But what is her job really? What does she actually do? This is a, th this distinction between hard power, of which she has virtually none, and soft power, which somehow everyone knows she possesses, but it's tremendously elusive question to try to actually define what she does, at least to me. Well, I think uh, I, I'm going to interpret your question as saying, what is her residual power? And, um, uh, and uh, she has quite a lot of residual power if you're an academic constitutional lawyer. Um, but one's seen the residual power, I think, in three ways uh, in my lifetime. The first residual power is, is one of simply talking to the prime minister. She has a, a weekly chat. And of course, she knows a lot more about the country than all but the most experienced prime ministers. And she's seen it all before in her 70 years. And she's she's super sharp. Um, I mean, she's super sharp. There's no... Um, there's no question of her cognitive ability having been diminished at all. And she's very aware of everything going on. So she's actually quite an interesting sounding board for a prime minister. And therefore, she has that element. I mean, none of, no one else has that ability. Secondly, um, she has the power of convening things. 
And so if there is a, a, a problem, um, she actually could say, let's discuss this and convene half a dozen people into a room. And I dare say that she exercises that fairly um, rarely, but she does have a, a series of, uh, of, of places where she can convene people to discuss uh, problems and at least introduce people to each other and acts as a sort of neutral ground having people who might have arguments. And that power of convening things, which often used to take place as lunches in Buckingham Palace or in other ways, has, I think, been extended for the use of, um, of technology. But that has been uh, something which she has exercised, I think, very carefully and well in her reign. And in fact, her, her son exercised that as well. The final thing, if one wants a real example of the use of constitutional power, twice in my lifetime, we've gone through a general election and ended up in a hung position, i.e. where there is no obvious answer as to who's going to form the government. And that happened in 1974, and it happened in 2010. And what happens then is that the monarch invites someone to form a government. And as I said, it's not obvious at all, and twice she had to exercise, uh, therefore, her, her a choice. Obviously, she had lots of um, submissions and she had advice and everything like that, but she chose, and both times she chose clearly, in my view, the right answer um, constitutionally and, and correctly. So uh, she's, she's um, uh, as you said, hard power, not really there, soft power, still there in, in reasonable amounts. Thank you for joining us. Um, Lord Canool? That's one way. I just call me Charles. Charles, <laughs> I think that's right. I was just trying to figure it out. I, I'm always wrong, um, however, however I do it. Um, so she is an extraordinary person. And she does sort of span this sort of, she does, I mean, obviously she came to, the, she ascended the throne in the early 50s, but she is sort of, I think, indelibly connected to the, a wartime royal. Um, that she's sort of the World War II, she was a young you know, volunteer of some kind and a mechanic. She does seem to have had an enormous amount of experience and wisdom, 96 years old, but 96 years old. The question isn't, is she great? Yes, she's, I think she's fantastic. Pretty much everybody who seems to be coming after her, when there's a line and you can tell who they are, um, doesn't seem to be even close to her level. I mean, I would not, I, I don't, I'm not a British citizen, as you might have imagined, but I could not imagine the crack pottery that King Charles uh, might uh, might uh, apply when he's trying to sort of invite someone to form a government. My God, who who would Charles invite? So, isn't there a sense of enormous? I mean, part of the celebration isn't it also tinged with this disquiet of oh my God, look who's next? Or am I being unkind, which I often am? You're certainly being unkind. Are you also incorrect? Right. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, the thing is, is it's, it's always the same in life. And when you have a very, very good CEO or a very, very good professor at a university and they retire uh, or are no longer mm -hmm. there, always worry about who's following after. Who's following after doesn't follow after for life. That's the thing. They, that person who follows after is often gets tossed by the board in two or three years. Uh, and that, that can happen. But my point is, 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 is not so much that that sanction isn't available, but you don't quite know how people will be. 
And um, uh, and the thing is that every now in a monarchy, you'll have an absolutely terrific uh, monarch, and then you might have some quite ordinary ones or whatever. And I'm not saying that I expect Charles, if he ascends the throne ever, that he will be ordinary or, or think, I mean, he has the chance to, to prove himself at that point. And um, he would have studied for the role for over many years. But uh, as we, we, you have to have a head of state, and the method that we have um, is, is to have a monarch. And uh, monarch has quite a lot of uh, patrolling things, and I'm sure that if, going back to the, my two examples in 1974 and 2010, if the monarch exercised uh, something wrongly there, there would then be a constitutional crisis and there would be a change uh, in, in, in our country. And... Um, so I, I think it's sort of fairly self-patrolling. Uh, I mean, the courts and parliament are not um, would not stand by if they thought that the monarch was um, doing something utterly wrong. But there is. I, I, I'm just pushing you back on this a little bit because I, and I'm probably putting you in a terrible position, but it does seem like the queen represents a certain kind of. Um, um, I'm not going to say ancient, but a traditional British character: uh, stiff upper lip, mm. duty patriotism, a willingness to sacrifice an enormous amount of her life for her country. Um, it doesn't seem like her offspring have that. Certainly, her, her, well, at least one of her sons is, a, is a, you know, two steps from prison. And the other, the oldest son, the heir, seems to be sort of uh, uh, have a wayward life, an indulgent life. Um, and then have been sort of in the thrall of a lot of sort of weird new age uh, stuff. Maybe the one after him is going to sort of right the ship a bit. He seems like he's sort of put together right. But it does seem like the thing is unraveling. Or again, am I am I misreading it? Well, I think in any family, um, you get sheep of every color, frankly. And um, so <laughs> you're just uh, well, not going to take my bait, are you? <laughs> well, no, no. I, I think the thing is that um, you, you will you will get that uh, problem that you have some members of the family who are not satisfactory. And uh, I mean, we did have, of course, in Edward VIII, who's the Queen's uncle, who ascended the throne briefly in 1936. We had someone who I think would have been a very unsatisfactory yes. monarch. And, and he abdicated. And, um, of course, there was an awful lot of behind-the-scenes arm-twisting and things to go on that ultimately resulted in his, in his abdicating. And I think the thing about um, every other monarchy around is that you, you do have some wrongings in the, in the family as well, um, and you just have to live with that. And I dare say Charles? there's some wrongs in the first families of the, of the, of the of a presidential system. Sorry, Peter. Yes, no, no, you, you, yes, yes, yes. I was waiting for that counterattack. That will shut us up right away. We began this program. You weren't with us, but we began this program by cataloging the current faults in our chief executive. All right. Could I ask a related question to Rob's? But it's about you, and it's about your family. Rob said, and even over here, I sit in California, so I'm on the other side of the planet from you. Even over here, we feel that this 96-year-old woman represents a set of virtues, a moment in the Second World War of undoubted greatness, and that Britain has changed. So here you are, upholding a family tradition that goes back to Charles I. I've heard you talk about your father, whom you revered, who grew up in a different world from yours. 
here you are after a very successful career in business. You did not have to devote your years, your I hate to say your final years because I'm about as old. I'm actually a year or two older than you are, as I recall. But you did not have to volunteer for this position in, as a hereditary peer in the House of Lords, which is quite hard work. You didn't have to do that. But here you are holding together, help, helping to hold together a 1,000-year-old institution, the House of Lords, and you're raising children. You have Your daughters are teenaged children. In fact, you, somebody must be about ready to go off to university. How do you, two questions, how do you and your wife attempt to transmit in your own family the values that you consider enduring, the distinctively British values that you consider enduring, while adapting to a changed world, and does the Queen help you do you do when the when your children were little would you say now now that's not something the queen would like does it does it does does is there some i'm trying to get at this question what it really comes down to is that we have children and either we transmit certain things to the children or we don't even as rob was saying either the either this this institution changes generations successfully or there's going to be trouble. How do you handle that in your own family? And does does having a monarchy as a model in the country help? Well, uh, thank you for that. Firstly, that um, the the sort of um, family trope is you learn, you earn, you serve, and um, uh, and you can do it in a different order. But the idea is that you try and do all three things in your life, and that's something that I believe in, and I. Uh, I as it were, uh, it came down to me, and I've tried to pass it on to our children. It'd be up to them to decide whether they follow that formula. I got to the serve bit of my life, and I got the opportunity to arrive in the Lords. And that's where altruism slightly stops, because actually I've been absolutely fascinated uh, by it. I arrived with almost the perfect skill set at the time that I arrived at almost the perfect age, so I was jolly lucky. And that's why I chair the European Affairs Committee, which had to deal with the whole of Brexit and is now dealing with the political side of the Ukraine war. And I'm a deputy, I'm a deputy speaker now as well. So I find it absolutely fascinating and enthralling. And in a rather selfish way, I therefore pursue it. And I, I, I for all these various posts, I have to be, uh, it has to be agreed by the House. It's, no, you know, it's not a sort of something. So every all the House has the opportunity to vote me off, as it were, but I've survived quite a few votes. So, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's utterly fascinating and it's a great privilege to be involved. Yes, it's slightly odd to be a hereditary peer, only about 15% of the Lords are still hereditary, but I would have had a go. Um, at becoming a peer in the other ways if that hadn't been the case, because I still believe in the you serve bit. And as for the monarchy, well, um, I think she's the ultimate new person who serves, and I regard her as being a, a jolly good um, beacon, showing me the sort of way I should behave. And um, I think I'd find it more difficult if, if the monarch was someone less obviously jolly good. If only there was a composer who could do her justice. You know, I was thinking this would be a great time to have a William Walton did, you know, did Orban Scepter, did the Crown Imperial. We need a Jubilee theme. And I thought, who would do it exactly? 
I took a look online at what the uh, Albert Hall concert was, because apparently back in March they had a Jubilee concert, and it's a, it's, it's a parade of great British music, the most, the most British music you can imagine. From Holst, of course, you know, the Jupiter, the Pomp and Circumstance, Greensleeves, Fantasia, Crown Imperial, and Butterworth. I mean, it's, it's wonderful stuff. And apparently the BBC or somebody is holding a party in a couple of days with all of these meretricious, forgettable pop stars, none of whom will really go down a memory with them, like the composers I just mentioned. And you wonder whether or not her, her, she sums up an era of British culture that was lost long ago, that when Tony Blair started, you know, swapped out rule Britannia for cool Britannia, as that horrible ad campaign had it, that, that some fundamental aspect of English culture was on its way out for good. But you hope that there's some, there, there will be somebody who can channel those old, old spirits musically as, as they did once. But I'm not hopeful. Are you? I don't know. I mean, the, um, she's been uh, I'm also a deputy lieutenant for my area, which means that I represent the Queen every now and then. I'm going to represent her tomorrow at something. And um, uh, she's... Um, are, are you in Perthshire now? Where are you? Up in Scotland? I'm in rural Perthshire, middle of nowhere in Scotland. And right in, if you look at the map of Scotland, jolly difficult, and say, well, where is the middle of it? And you put your pin down, it'll be pretty close and, to and, here. And what's the event, just to give us a feel for how the whole country is celebrating, what's the event in Perthshire tomorrow that you'll be attending? So the event is a great big sort of um, uh, local area uh, parade and uh, then uh, it's a sort of uh, event ring and lots of different things are going on inside the event ring, including pipe bands, I've got the uh, thing here, all sorts of um, uh, military reenactments of various things, um, songs and dancing and more pipe bands, and it's just a, it's a, a sort of excuse to get together and have a thoroughly good um, afternoon of fun, really. And um, it's all for charity, and um, uh, and there will be many thousands of people there in areas where there are actually not many people, so the turnout rates are huge um, for this. But um, uh, I've really answered your question, and um, it's hard to answer. It really is because I mean, cultures change, things change, but there's still a, there's a, there's a essentially British sound, right? Um, yeah. and there's a, there's a, there's a character to all of the arts that seems now to be symbols of a culture that has passed. Uh, it, we in America have the same. Will, we, will you settle for bagpipes, James? He's going to be getting, but I, I've, I haven't mentioned that deliberately because I love the pipes and I'll be listening to lots of pipes, um, over the course of the next couple of days, but um, I don't like the new tune, I'm afraid. But uh, the Queen has uh, one of the things that she's wanted to do with the Jubilee is to make sure that it's marked in various permanent ways. And um, so it's what she decided that she would like trees planted. And Britain is actually not a very big country, but so far, 1.2 million trees have been planted, and um, uh, and that's about halfway. We've had to. Under the rules of the planting, you stop planting now and you start again in October, and there'll be lots more planted then. Mm. Certainly, we'll be planting some trees. And um, so I, I think she's trying to reflect the permanence marker stone of the, of the Platinum Jubilee in, in another way. And I, I think it's a pity that there isn't a, 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 it's a very nice idea of yours that there should have been 
the top composer composing something and the the top poet composing something and and some of it would have been very worthwhile well maybe we'll do that for her hundredth year of the throne um i can't (laughs) wait to see the forest the next time i'm in england and we thank you for joining us today and best wishes to the sceptered isle and of course to the queen thank you very much (laughs) goodbye all and I'm sure that the queen sleeps on the finest. Not save the queen. Yeah. I'm sure that the queen sleeps. Wait, did Rob just say those words? Yeah, it's polite. God save the queen, of course. Charles, you've won him over. I'm not too sure about God heart. save the king afterwards, but, uh, you know, we'll live. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh-oh, where are we? No, I was just going to say that it's probably certain that the queen sleeps on the finest sheets. And you're probably thinking, oh, and you're oh, nice. oh, 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 oh. what? That's that, that is about the most obvious segue you can think of. There's not a, there's not I know, a, but I hadn't thought of it. There's not a jot yeah. of inspiration or imagination that went into it. Um, except, Untroubled sleep of royal. Uh, uneasy lies, uneasy sleeps the head that wears the crown, right? Unless you're her age and you're probably sleeping quite fine. And you're probably thinking that's because she's got 800 count sheets. 800 thread count, whatever that... No, 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 no. Thread count's a myth. Doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they're not the best threads possible, right? Bowl and Branch. Bowl and Branch, you've heard of them before. You've heard us talk about them, and you know probably at this point that they use the best 100% organic cotton threads on this earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. Their sheets aren't just buttery and breathable and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. And I am here to tell you that I am happy that I think we've been doing these four or five weeks in a row now in the latest campaign. And I can tell you with absolute certainty and truth that every week they're softer than they were before. The signature hemmed sheets from Bolden Branch are a bestseller for a reason. Bolden Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. Their sheets are made with threads that are so luxurious they're beloved by how many? Let's all say three. Three, count them, U.S. presidents. They feel buttery to the touch and they're super breathable, so they're perfect for every season. They didn't acquire over 10,000 stellar reviews for no reason. No, when you get the best sheets in the market, people notice. They're so confident that you will love them. Bowl & Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all your orders. So head on over to Bowl & Branch, get total sleep satisfaction. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code RICOCHET at bowlandbranch.com. That's Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L, and Branch. Dot com promo code ricochet and we thank Boland branch for sponsoring this the ricochet podcast gentlemen i have to leave you to your own devices here because i have a friend from high school who's coming by and it's always great to see people you knew from wow. way back when especially when they're doing yes, well uh there's an old guy from speech and debate that i knew uh, he was a jock he was into funk music and ended up teaching jazz at a texas university which is great but the, uh, regrettably i'm going to show him a newspaper office and it's uh, something in less than its peak of excitement so all those you know movies that he watched front page all the president's men expecting this bustling place with people running around clattering clacking on typewriters and smoking now sorry not like that anymore but that's just me um regretting the loss of the noisy, profane uh, newsroom with uh, grifters and Damon Runyon types hanging around the margins and guys in hats and dames and uh, nylons that went skrr, skrr, skrr. The front page. All of that stuff. So I I have to let you go. Uh, You got some stuff here to talk about, wonderful ricochet events that I wish that I could be at, and then uh, discuss the, uh, well, whatever you wish. So. I'll see you next week, and thank you, everybody, for putting up with my uh, babbling here. I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, James. Next week, James.
Well, we, we, we did accomplish to be, we overlapped for a little bit, the, the three of us all together. It's going to be sort of a tenor in summers. Um, I should say that last night we had a no dumb questions uh, for members only. If you're not a member of Ricochet, you missed it, but you should join and you could hear Charles Cook, who is um, not only sort of helping us out in a lot of ways technically here at Rick Ricochet and sort of joining the team, but he is also um, a firearms expert. And, you know, he's a, He's a an actual gun nut. I mean, not, I mean that he's a fan and he he's a collector and he's serious about it. So he uh, he's my first turn to whenever I am about to say something about firearms because I know he'll know more than I will. Um, uh, and uh, he got some great questions for Ricochet members, so we thank him for that. Uh, coming up next, uh, I don't know if it's next week. It's like on the sixteenth, fifteenth. Uh, check it out. Go to ricochet.com. You can see uh, the Byron York show. Um, our podcast is going to have a DC event with Molly Hemingway. Um, and we're very grateful to Hillsdale uh, College, DC, Hillsdale, DC, for helping us uh, put it together. Live taping of the Byron York Show with Molly Hemingway, now completely full, unfortunately sold out, but you can get it in anyway. Um, that's sold out in about 11 hours. So um, if Ricochet members here try to register and would still like to come, uh, email alex uh, at ricochet.com. Alex at ricochet.com. That's Alex Rosenwald. And he, we will do our best to accommodate. Um, it sold out really quickly. Uh, and that's a good sign. Um, if you're not a member, you should join and um, come to the next one. Um, we're doing a lot of things like this, a lot of no dumb questions, and these are all good reasons to join Ricochet, in addition to helping us pay off our infuriating um, uh, legal settlement for um, what was, in fact, we were targeted because of our... <laughs> if you could believe it, we were targeted because of, of, of my politics. So <laughs> if you could believe it... Um, uh, by the left, so we're, we are trying to pay that off. So if you've been thinking about joining and you think, ah, what's the why, why bother? Do it because first of all, we need it, and second of all, we'd love to see you at the next um, uh, next big Ricochet live event. We've had about four or five in the in the very, very quickly. Uh, also, just you should uh, just so you know on the Ricochet Network, take back our schools. Um, our podcast really about schools. Um, they have a great discussion this week on what this new thing called social emotional learning. Um, and the relationship between that new buzzword and critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion. And you'll be not surprised to know that there is a connection and you should absolutely listen to it. It's sort of riveting. And the only way to combat the stuff is to know about it. And um, Take Back Our Schools is the place to find it out. Um, and of course, Kryptonite with Rich Goldberg. Um, uh, all of this sort of crypto stuff, he's, he's getting deep into it, but it's incredibly accessible. I can understand it. If I can understand it, you can understand it. He's got uh, two great guests this week um, um, talking about how cryptocurrency is uh, being used by, um, I guess, terrorists uh, and how it's been embraced by um, certain groups for fundraising. And it's really worth listening to. Um, crypto is not going away. So, and it's complicated. Rich makes it easy. Peter, are you back? I saw you had some. I'm sort of back. My my the, the arm that holds my microphone just fell off the desk for Wait, reasons that, I don't understand. It just collapsed. Not your own can you arm. Hear me? The, yeah, I can no, hear you. Not your own arm. No, the the mechanical arm. So I'm I'm sort of trying to hold the microphone as it as the a heavy weighted arm attempts to pull it away from me over the side of the desk onto the floor. But if that's the worst problem I encountered today, it will have been an unusually yeah, easy day. Not bad. Uh, now, I mean, I I know we should wrap here, but I mean, um... I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Have you seen Top Gun? I haven't. I hear it's good though. No. Yeah, I think it's it is it is perfect of its kind, 
but I, but A, I want to be careful about getting too enthusiastic before, of course, I never want to express an opinion and get out in front of you who actually know about films. I think it's perfect of its kind as pop entertainment, but when I saw the original in the 80s and I could, it all came back, I could remember sitting in the theater in 86, 87, and the movie seemed connected with a moment in the country. We'd been through the 84 mm -hmm. Olympics in Los Angeles, this mm -hmm. whole rebirth of morale, the economy was booming, Reagan got reelected, Roger Ailes campaign slogan for the 1984 re-election campaign, morning and again in America, right. actually felt, of course, hokey to some extent, but true enough that Reagan carried 49 out of 50 states. And here was this sense of pride and fun involved in the American military. That all, it, it all felt as though the movie was expressing something or connected to something big about the country at that time. And now it's just, um, it's just an entertainment, an extremely well done entertainment, but just an entertainment that doesn't seem to have any connection with anything else. That was sort of, that was the one dissing bit of it, disappointing bit of it to me. Boy, so there's yeah. your homework assignment. Well, we used to call that a, we used to call that kind of movie, which, it's just we used to call it a deal memo that it sort of it represented more of the sort of deal that they used to put it together than it did an actual story. So maybe there's yeah. something like that going on. Uh, it's too bad. It's a, but but it's a you know look. I mean, there um, after all the hand wringing about theaters and movies are dead and no one's going to the theater anymore. It turns out that people are going to the theater and um, the big budget movies, which are I mean like that one's one of them, um, even sort of medium high budget movies are going to premiere in the theater you're still gonna be able to go to the movies right um, you may not get any popcorn apparently movies because a popcorn shortage but you'll be able to go to the movies um and about the, the multiplex we went to has 20 screens 16 of those screens were showing top gun <laughs> well that's, that's a, a lot big of screens, weekend that's, a, that's big a big first opening weekend, weekend. yeah you, you divide it but you get something called the per screen average that's kind of how they do it but i'll bet you some uh, of those screens they count as one because they probably have them you know running at the same time or something um yeah. uh mean meanwhile the uh, uh, uh apparently student loans are being forgiven <sighs> for about half a million borrowers up to 5.8 billion dollars so um <laughs> i took seven or eight years to pay off mine you didn't have student loans aristocrat that you are i'm sure but no no i, I had but um, uh, i remember writing that check every single month and and yet i mean it just it, i mean even the merits of it if you if you if there are merits of it i'm all years i'd love to hear the argument for the merits of it um it, they don't seem to be any merits of it when we're facing massive inflation are there, or am uh, I just sort of listen, am I honestly, economically illiterate because I mean, money uh, in, money out? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a stupid thing to do. It's an unjust thing to do. But you know what? I am filled with glee because if the Democratic Party wanted to do one thing, take one action that mm -hmm. just cemented the notion that there is a new Republican Party, that the Republican Party is a working party working class party, workers right. party. This is it. It's the well, Democrats mean, the who engage in this huge transfer from ordinary working people to college, to people graduating from fancy colleges and getting degrees in gender studies and then going off and discovering right. that as social worker, you don't get paid enough to repay your student loan. Please. 
Uh, I mean, this there that's another half a dozen House seats that'll flip to the Republicans, as far as I can tell. I mean, in in um, you know, just to just in uh, speaking you know, just of the details here, um, um, this is debt accumulated by borrowers who went to a for-profit college called Corinthian College or Corinthian Colleges, I guess, uh, which uh, filed for bankruptcy about seven years ago, eight years ago, and. Um, file for bankruptcy because i think there was some fraud involved so these are people who seem to have been uh, could be described as victims of this um of misleading practices in education which um (laughs) is sort of hilarious because i mean i'm not sure that princeton and brown and yale and Dartmouth and harvard don't also mislead you in thinking that your degree in uh, deconstructionist French literary philosophy. Also, Listen, now you're touching. Us. <laughs> I'm going to leave you. I had an Uber driver not that long ago. Uber driver to the airport not that long ago, and we started chatting, and it disco- and I discovered that he was a recent graduate of Princeton University. Oh, yeah. oh, that's interesting. I said, thinking that's also a little bit puzzling. What's going on here? I didn't put the question quite that way. And he said, well, my mom and dad are Mexican. I grew up in San Jose. I got to Princeton. They said, oh, yeah, of course. You should do, you should major in Hispanic Uh-oh. studies. You should major in Hispanic studies. Your mom and dad are first, you're a first generation American and you get the treasure of attending Princeton University and all the messages he gets there are major in Hispanic studies and then he graduates from Princeton University and discovers that it is pretty hard to get a job as a with a Hispanic studies major so he's driving an uber unbelievable speaking of fraud in education well right I mean that's the the argument for the for-profit Against the for-profit colleges has always come from the non-profit colleges who think that you know they they're trying to protect their um their business. Uh, but I I do believe this is the first salvo in what will be larger debt forgiveness, so that we can reach fifteen percent inflation and, and really relive the fifth the seventies. Now, uh, any summer plans, Peter? I know we got to run, but any? Uh, what? What? Are you... I, I I think we're headed off to the mountains for a piece of uh, right. July. And um, and my wife is headed over to Spain in a few days oh, to man. see. As listeners may or may not know this, my wife is Cuban, and because Fidel Castro occupied Cuba while she was growing up, um, her family went to Spain. She went to Spain as a girl many summers. She has cousins and very good friends, friends from her uh, childhood over in Spain. She's headed over to Spain in, in a few days to see family and cousins. Uh, I'm a little bereft about that because I don't know quite what to do with my stop shaving. I stop changing my clothes. I can't sleep at night. It's a mess when she's gone, but but she'll be enjoying herself. What about you? Where are you going to be? I'm going to be around here. I'm going to probably go to the Cape probably in the beginning, end of June, beginning of July. And then uh, I've got to put together the rest of my summer, which I think is going to be kind of busy. I'm not quite sure exactly what the details are yet, but come to California. Days, a lot of things. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Although, you know, California. It's such a. It's not yesterday. <laughs> feels like a very. Feels like a very yesterday kind of a place. Used to be the tomorrow place, and now tomorrow came. I, and I know. Yesterday. I can't gain say that. I can't yeah. gain say that. Uh, either way, wherever we are, talk to you next week. Next week, Rob. Ricochet. <laughs> Join the conversation.